In this podcast, we take you with us on a journey about economics and investing. By being equipped with different perspectives, we strive to make better and more informed financial decisions. Welcome to Capital Convos. Today's episode features a conversation with AJ. AJ is a YouTuber focusing primarily on CFA-related educational content. He self-identifies as the world's coolest CFA charter holder. And of course, he means that jokingly, but I tend to agree with that opinion. I've really enjoyed his content for a while, and it was really cool to have him on the podcast. For those of you that don't know, the CFA designation is the most elite level academic achievement you can get in the finance industry and is notoriously difficult to obtain. We discussed his career as a financial advisor and how he deals with his wealth clients on a day-to-day basis. We hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you guys both for having me on. I'm excited to do it. Okay, great. Let's see. I asked you on your YouTube page if you wanted to come on the podcast. And I think I asked you two or three times. And then like out of nowhere, just a month later, I got this response from like, hey, great. It'd be cool. Like, could you please explain what went through your head when you saw the podcast request? And the reason I'm asking this is is not to toot my own horn and, and flatter myself. It's because people from Suriname, because we're such a small country, we have this idea that people on YouTube are like these gods because we we are so separated from them. But you're, in your case, we just sent you an, a message and you were happy to respond. So it was actually pretty easy. Could you please explain uh, what your thought process was when you saw the request? Yeah, I love that question, Gregory, and I'm glad you asked. I forgot that that is how it happened, but you're exactly right. And I feel like I owe you a bit of an apology because I would have responded the next day. And honestly, I'm on my YouTube channel reading the comments probably too often. And I respond to a lot of them just because I don't get a ton of them. I'm a smaller channel and I like to be interactive with folks. I didn't see your your comment at any point. And the way I typically look at comments, now this is probably just because of my, my own misunderstanding of how the YouTube platform works as a creator right now. Typically, the way I look at comments is by my notification bell, which mm-hmm. is in the upper right-hand corner on YouTube when you're looking at your channel. And when I log on, I'll usually have anywhere between two to nine plus notifications is all it shows there. And I'll, I'll yeah. click that notification bell and scroll through the most recent comments. And like I said, I look at all of those. Every time I have a new notification, I don't lo- let any go unread. I never saw your comment. And so maybe a month later when I did finally re- reply to you, I was in a different section on the YouTube platform where you can look at other analytics and likes mm-hmm. and uh, other comments as well. And I was scrolling through actually comments that YouTube had blocked as spam. Yours wasn't blocked as spam, but that's what I was looking at at this time and scrolling through many old comments. And then I went, I clicked on comments I have not replied to and looked at those. And I saw it on there as from a month ago. So I I responded the very moment that I saw it because I thought it was a fun idea. And I apologize that that didn't happen sooner. It's probably because I don't totally understand how YouTube shows me what the comments just posted onto my videos were. I know now that they don't all just go to that notification bell where I typically look for them at. So that's the reason why it took me about a month to get back to you. (laughs) All right. I just, I just want people to, yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, I just generally, I've noticed the same things, especially starting out in in the beginning, you see all the notifications you check up immediately, but I can imagine growing up, I've seen it at other smaller channels that content creators like to engage with every comment. So 
probably you'll get to the point where you can't engage with all the comments and <laughs> eventually get, that, that's the goal to quickly follow up what did the thought process behind that after you saw it that you were like let's come on did you know about Suriname did you do podcasts before I hadn't done any podcasts before I think if I'm remembering it correctly the comment Gregory left me was hey you sound like you speak really well you might be good for a podcast would you join mine so adding the little compliment there beforehand you know perks my attention like oh maybe I would be good at this maybe I should say yes and I think that's a little bit of it too I certainly knew nothing about Suriname I had never heard of the country before and after I exchanged a couple emails and you mentioned that you were from there I checked it out on a map and I'm surprised that I haven't heard of it before because I'm very familiar with all the countries neighboring yours, but for whatever reason, I didn't know of it, and I have not done a podcast before. So I guess it was just the hey, why not try try why not try this out that that encouraged me to say yes. My excuse for this podcast basically is to find some way to get conversations with people abroad because finance is such a niche topic that it's hard to find people in certain talk to talk to about. So. Like, if people are listening and you're interested in topics, like, just start a podcast, just send people random messages, and guaranteed you'll find some interesting people to talk to. All right. So, all right, AJ, your fo- your channel is focused mainly on financial education, I suppose, and, and your experience as, as a financial professional. Could you please start off and explain what is the CFA and what is the CFP? Because those are two degrees that you have. Yeah, and I would adjust what you just said, Gregory, and say that my channel is actually really focused on the CFA and CFP specifically, mm-hmm. and not so much other areas of financial education. Now, that's not ideal for me. One of the reasons I got into finance is because I'm very interested in educating as many people as possible on the very basics of finance. However, the basics of personal finance type videos do not perform well on my channel for whatever reason. And there are other very popular, only focused on personal finance content YouTube channels out there. I don't compete too well with those, but there are not that many CFA and CFP focused YouTube channels out there. So I compete very well, in my opinion, in that space. Okay, so sorry, I forgot your question now. Did you say describe the CFA and CFP program? Yeah, because people don't really know what they are. So could you please just give a brief introduction what they are? Yeah. The CFA is, it stands for the Chartered Financial Analyst Exam. It is an international program globally recognized that a lot of people would consider the gold standard in the finance industry. It is a program that takes a minimum of three. Well, they've recently adjusted the structure, so I think someone could pass it in uh, two years and three months maybe would be the most quickest uh, time period now. But it's a postgraduate finance program that uh, some people will take 10 years doing. It's completely self-study. It's not administered by any university or college. It's just administered by the CFA Institute. It focuses on 10 different areas of finance, economics, ethics, corporate finance, equities, fixed income, derivatives, alternatives, a couple others. It's a very difficult program. The pass rate to get through all three levels and become a CFA charter holder is less than 20%. I think the real number is around 10 or 12%. And it's already some very intelligent and very motivated people who attempt to become CFA charter holders. So if you ever, I do this from time to time just for my own interest. Google, what are the most difficult exams in the world? Usually, depending on the source or website you look at, they'll have the CFA program up there in the top three or top five most difficult academic programs in the world. And I would agree with that, even though I haven't partaken in too many other academic programs out there. The CFP 
is another academic program. It's administered by the College of Financial Planning. CFP is a certified financial professional, and it's mo- mostly in the United States. I'm sure you can get it in Europe and other most developed markets, but I know that most of their marketing is done in the United States. It focuses on personal financial planning. So the CFA is much more focused on investments, portfolio construction, and analytics. The CFP is much more focused on people, families, and their own personal finances and the various financial planning topics that can exist in people's lives. So they're pretty different designations. There's not a lot of overlap on the exams for either one, but both of them are important for my career. CFP, CFA, so clarify if we're wrong. So you've done both? Yeah. You've passed both exams? Right. After university, I did the CFA program in three years. And then I felt very lucky because the CFP program also, like I mentioned, is relevant in in my work. The CFP program requires two years of formal education before you can take the exam. Now, some universities have built this relationship with the CFP board. And so the CFP board acknowledges those university programs as counting towards the two years of education requirements. My university did not. So for me to later in the CFP, I would have had to go to basically night classes at a local college for two years, and then I could take the test. But the CFP board also recognizes a few other designations as qualifying prerequisites, and those are the CFA, PhD, so if you have a doctorate in anything, uh, and I think maybe a master's in accounting. So because I had the CFA, I was able to skip two years of education requirements that I would have had to go through before sitting for the CFP exam, and I could just sit for the exam outright. So I studied for like three weeks. The CFP exam is far easier than the CFA exams. It's not an easy exam. The CFP exam is still difficult, but it is nowhere near as difficult as the CFA exam. So I studied for a few weeks and and passed that, and so I feel really fortunate to be able to have gotten that designation with far less effort than I think a lot of people have to put into it. Not because I'm smarter than them, but because I already had the prerequisite that I got to skip the education requirements. So this is basically, I think, a question for Greg, and I want to put you on the spot here, Greg. But as AJ mentioned, postgraduate program really U.S.-focused, and we outside of the U.S. usually have this notion of, you know, a lot of things being marketed, adopted globally are U.S.-focused, but we lack access or, you know, the ability to do them. And I know Greg is trying to get that the CFA certification as well. So my question to you then is how, from what you've experienced, do internationals get access into this environment? And does it translate well in non-US markets? I'm not exactly sure how someone internationally would generate an interest in taking the CFA exams. I know it's very popular internationally, so there is certainly a market for that. Mostly people already working in finance or people who want a promotion in finance. And Greg, you know, you could answer that as well because you are doing it. But it certainly has a pull internationally. Mm -hmm. From a lot of the questions I've gotten on my YouTube channel, I don't think it has as much of a pull with potential employers, I mean, as it does in the United States. But it certainly still carries some weight, yeah. Yeah, so getting into that question is because I work at an insurance company based in Latin America, we deal with foreign investments a lot. And when evaluating investment proposals, the type of funds we would consider investing in, we always see at the top page, fund manager, that, that, that name, CFA. 
and right. they, they brag about how many CFAs they have in their corporation. And eventually I was, I thought like, okay, this thing is pretty prestigious. What if I got my own? Then I would be able to put my name in such a report and have the same weight that those, as those people. And because I come from Suriname where financial markets are barely even developed, like the barrier to entry for someone like me to immigrate to Wall Street, the barrier to entry is huge. But if you get a CFA, you can at least get one foot in the door and that's mostly all you need then you're in. So th- th- does that answer your question? So it, you get the CFA and then the whole world opens up to you. But if you you immigrate from Suriname, even if you got a master's in finance, which is considered okay if, uh, for our standards, you still really can't get into the, the, into the Wall Street crowd. Is that, is that right, AJ? Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I mean, I, I of course never grew up in Suriname, but I have seen a lot of the Wall Street Bank recruiting process. I had a lot of folks that I studied with in university go through that recruiting process, and I never heard anything about folks coming from international countries to join in on that recruiting process. So I imagine it's very difficult, but I am sure that having the CFA charter behind your name would give some weight and get your foot in the door, like you mentioned, yeah. Speaking of applying to jobs, there there's this really interesting story from your channel that i saw that during your internship you sent about was it 172 applications to uh, potential companies like that is crazy for someone from Suriname to see that because let me just explain our side like we have very little knowledge here in Suriname and the really smart people they usually leave to study abroad because they get grants from other governments to study over there because we're a poor country but then they never come back which means like the people that are left over here, they aren't usually the brightest of the bright. And then it isn't a very competitive labor market over here. But in the United States, it's really competitive, which means you actually have to do the work of interning for companies and sending 172 applications, which is crazy. Could you please explain like the amount of persistence and like mental stability to hear no like I think it was 160 ones that declined or even didn't answer. Could you please explain that process? Yeah, and I'm glad you asked about that, Gregory. Later, I want to talk about what you just mentioned. I, I don't have a ton of experience in speaking with folks from poor nations. And what you just mentioned just, I don't know, hurts my heart a little bit. But to your question, it definitely takes a lot of persistence. And I'm glad you asked because I get this question a lot on YouTube in comments on other videos. And I always refer folks back to my, I have a couple videos that describe this process. One is I think called how to land an internship in finance and the other might just be how to land a job in finance. But it's not easy to get your foot in the door in these places. Even I went to a very highly rated undergraduate finance program and all my friends and family had always said, oh, that's great, AJ. You're going to have a job so easy. It's, you're going to have it easy. And I believe that for the first couple of years of my college studies that, you know, in the United States, you go to college for four years, but in the third year and the, and certainly the fourth year, I came to realize that it is not that easy to get a job and it's still an extremely competitive market. So the strategy I used and the strategy I tell many, many other people to use is to make as many contacts as you possibly can, because there are definitely employers out there looking to hire and no matter what you want to do, as long as it's something that is kind of a job that exists, as long as it's not like I want to be a professional 
like turtle race gambler or something, as long as it's something that is a skill that exists in the marketplace, there are companies out there who hire people doing that and companies experience turnover, which means there are companies out there who are going to need to hire people to do those jobs. They're very difficult to find and they're not always posted on websites. I know of a lot of companies myself who don't actively list job applications, but they would pick someone up if they found a good applicant. So that's what I would do. Of the 160 lines that I've mentioned, I still have saved on an Excel document on all these contacts I was making. Only about half of those were formal applications that were on company websites. I got three eventual offers from all that. One of them was from a formal application, but two were not. So these were not even job listings. These were just companies that I had done some look on on Google, really reading online and a little bit of word of mouth. And I said, hey, these companies seem to operate in the type of marketplace that I want to build a career in. I'm going to contact them. Phone calls, emails, and LinkedIn messages are the three ways to do it. Reach out to as many of them as you possibly can. And a side point, I think I discussed this in both of those videos, is another good way to find them is to find a geographic region where there are a lot of these similar firms because typically firms operating in a similar business will be within the same 10-mile radius or something like that and get on Google Maps and click down the street and look for other firms and businesses that may be, uh, may be a potential hire for you in the future. Find their business, Google the address, get an email, get a LinkedIn message and contact as many people as you can saying, Hey, this is how I can help your firm. You know, what you say in the message is, is another conversation, but contact as many as possible. That's what I did. And that's what I tell a lot of other folks to do also. Following up on these applications, after you got your, I guess, your foot in the door into one of them. And I want to reflect back to an earlier episode, me and Greg did uh, with a friend of us who was in Canada, uh, also in investment banking. Because he kind of, if I remember correctly, Greg, he got into the door by like going through an internship during his internship period. He kind of just worked for, yeah, free basically, got, got his, like, got grinded down and showed what he could do within the organization. So from your experience during these applications, how much was weighted on the prior education you had? Because I assume you didn't have the CFA and CFP qualifications yet back then. Neither so of what them. Di- You're right. Yeah. What, what differentiated you getting your foot in the door at your first offer? And did you change like jobs afterwards right. in between? So I think the best answer for what can differentiate someone and probably what differentiated me is the type of information you include in the contact you make to them. So all these contacts I just mentioned, you want to do uh, two or three things and that's it. You want it to be pretty short and sweet. You want to tell them what you do and how you can help them and give them some type of ask like, Hey, can you please respond? Hey, can you whatever that is that in itself is a differentiating factor because a business owner or a hiring manager, they don't have a lot of time. And if they can read an email in 14 seconds that right away, someone is telling them, I can solve a problem that exists for you in your business, in your life. There's going to be some interest from them, actually from maybe 10% of them to, to respond to you. But if you don't do those things, maybe 0% of them will respond to you. My very first internship though, Diego, which was after my second year of university, I kind of cheated on that one. That was just a, a family friend contact that I had asked the gentleman, Hey, can I in- intern for you? And he said, yes, I interned for free. I, I didn't get paid all summer, but I didn't have to hustle to, to land that job. I, I Again, I kind of had the connections to to get my foot in the door there. The following ones, 
cared a little bit about that prior experience I had had, but honestly, most of what I was doing was scanning papers, so it wasn't super helpful. They did like the university that I was attending. It's good to have a good brand name university on a resume, certainly, but it's not a requirement. I think if you, even if you didn't have a great educational background or other internship experiences and you do what I'm saying to do, you could land in a position that you'd be really happy in. You just have, might have to contact 200 or 300 people where I only did 150. You said from an early age you already knew you wanted to go into wealth management because you were so dedicated to get your foot in the door that you sent 172 applications. What, when you're that young, you, you're kind of naive. You don't really know what the nitty gritty looks like. What attracted you to wealth management and, and financial planning in general? And, and do you think you made the right choice? And as a bonus, I think, what other job do you think you would have taken had you not considered your current position? There are two reasons I decided I wanted to be a financial advisor, and I was 13 years old at the time. My dad and I were reading a magazine, and it said the top 10 happiest, or the top 10 careers with the highest satisfaction, and financial advisor was number one. And I said, hey, that sounds kind of interesting. And so within the week or a couple weeks, we had talked about buying a stock, and he kind of gave me the background on what it is when you buy a stock and how the financial markets grow over time. And within the next year, I had just gained a very small amount of information, but enough information about that to say, this is a way that people can build wealth very passively. It's not passive income like people talk about on YouTube, which involves like buying and flipping rental properties or something like that. It's passive. You know, you put money in your 401k plan or Roth IRA, whatever else type of account. And regular people can utilize financial markets, which are mostly utilized by very wealthy institutions and, and individuals. So I really like the concept of helping people behave responsibly, in my opinion, in saving their money and investing to create a financial freedom for themselves later on in life. And that's that's why I like the career. I'm very happy I chose the career, yes. I don't think I've ever thought about trying to switch industries or even switching jobs. So to answer your final question there, Gregory, I guess I could try to be like a professional video game streamer or something, but I'm I'm relatively competitive video games, but not on a professional level by any means. So I don't know. I have a ton of interests. I mean, if I spent some time thinking about that question, I'd love to be a race car driver. <laughs> I don't know if that would be realistic either. So uh, honestly, I've never really considered other, maybe what you would call viable careers outside of wealth management. Before I move on, I wanted to go into something there, but real quickly, could you explain what a 401k is and a Roth IRA? IRA. IRA. Yeah, because yeah, I hear that a lot. I've read it in books, but that's very US-based. And mm-hmm. for us here, I, I don't even know where, I, I got a general idea, but I don't understand what to picture in that sense. So from a very basic background, a 401k is an investment account that is linked to your employer. So if you have a job working for XYZ company, the way 401ks in the United States work is you will tell your employer, I want to put 3% or 5% or 10% of my paycheck every week or every other week, depending on your payroll schedule, into this 401k account. And the majority of employers will also match your contributions up to a certain percentage. A common percentage is three. So a typical scenario is someone says, okay, 
XYZ employer, please put 5% of my paycheck each me each week into my 401k plan. And the employer says, okay, I'll do that. And I'll also match 3%. So you have 8% of your annual income going into this 401k throughout the year. And then the money is in an investment account. You choose how you want to invest it. Typically people will pick a mutual fund or index fund and keep it very simple. And you could use one investment your entire career. When you're 59 and a half years old, you can get this money back out in the United States. Technically you can get it out sooner than that for various circumstances, but the majority of the time, this is a retirement account. You save into it until you decide to retire. When you're about 60 or 65 years old, you can take the money back out and you live off of that throughout your retirement. A Roth IRA is basically similar. There's a difference in the taxation on that money. A Roth is more tax favorable later on in life and it's not linked to your employer, but it's still an investment account that you put money in each month, pick an investment and let the money grow for a long period of time. Hmm. Uh-huh. Thanks for clarifying that. So, Greg, it's kind of like the pension funds we have here, if, if I'm correct. You're in that field? Yeah, that's correct. We don't have a lot of options. There are some companies that have their pension funds at, at certain companies, but I don't want to get in trouble, but the, the pension funds here, they aren't very sophisticated and... and they don't really have the research capacity to put out as much money. So as they grow, there's a certain cap they reach and they then they don't really know what to do with the rest of their money. They don't know how to invest it abroad because there's only so many millions you can invest here locally before you, it starts getting really risky. But so, yeah, there aren't gotcha. a lot of opportunities over here. Okay, gotcha. So I, I think that brings some clarity here. So from my understanding now, the environment like with the 401ks and the Roth IRA, kind of uh, employees there in the States are already being thrown into this investment environment. You yourself are exposed to the stock market at an early age. So I think that, I guess, cultivated that savviness in, in, in the financial market for individuals Certainly. there, which we kind of completely lack. I myself in the past five years had to self-educate myself in the personal finance, how to get into markets. You hear about these things, you see them in the movies, you watch Wolf of Wall Street, you see yeah. people flip stocks, and then you think, what, what the hell is going on here? So to come to my question now with that context, how much do you think others, like I, I'm very non-US focused, but mm-hmm. You as a U.S. citizen, giving that perspective, do you think people outside the U.S., how easy would it be for them in the spaces you operate them to get into this market? I don't think it would be easy, especially not in what I do, because in wealth management, you manage a lot of relationships with people, and a lot of that involves talking with them about day-to-day life and for someone in your scenario or in any other nation that the financial markets operate differently and the personal financial planning system like 401ks and Roth IRAs that we just talked about in other markets where those things don't operate the same way it would be pretty difficult and not not even those even how uh, the schooling systems work relating to them and their kids and the estate planning and Different cultures treat family different ways and different cultures treat transportation and sport and everything in different ways. A lot of my job is conversations and relating with people and educating them. So having a background, having a very different background would make it pretty difficult to cultivate those relationships 
In something like Wall Street, however, which isn't what I do, but on Wall Street, you have to be very good at a relatively, in my opinion, relatively smaller set of skills. Mm. So as difficult as it is, now that you ask that, Diego, I think it might be a bit easier for someone from a foreign nation, foreign to the United States, where I'm at, to get a MBA and get a CFA charter and get some experience and then find themselves at a major finance firm doing like an analytical role where you have to be really good at a smaller set of skills rather than working in wealth management where you need to be able to relate to a lot of very different people. Okay, so I want to bring it down to basics a little bit because there is so little financial education in Suriname. I I just want to... Start off from the right point where everyone can follow. The, the typical allocation of a Roth IRA or a 401k is some mixture between stocks and bonds. And people don't re, they don't really understand what a stock is or what a bond is. They, they see the movies and stuff and they know you can make money off it. But could you please explain just the basics? What is a stock? What is a bond and how does that mix into an overall portfolio? A stock is a relatively aggressive investment. Technically, you're owning a small share of a company. Now, that's not really all that important. But the way a stock works is if you see a company out there that you like, the biggest one in the United States and maybe globally, almost globally, besides uh, Saudi Aramco, I think, is Amazon. A lot of people are familiar with Amazon. You could buy one share of Amazon. It's, I don't know, actually, I think $3,000, somewhere around there, U.S. dollars. And based on the fluctuation of the share price of Amazon, your investment that you paid $3,000 for could go up or down. Stocks in the United States and in many nations other than like Japan over the last 20 years typically go up over time, but they fluctuate, which is why they're considered more aggressive. You can make more money, but they fluctuate. And you can buy shares in many different stocks. ETFs are like baskets of various stocks if you don't want to pick your own. So there are a lot of different vehicles you can use to invest in stocks. Bonds, comparatively, are much more conservative. They're safer investments. The prices don't fluctuate much. They fluctuate a little bit, but not a, not much, not nearly as much as stocks. But you can't make as much money either. You earn a fixed stream of interest. And interest rates globally and certainly in the United States right now are extremely low. So you might be making 1% or 2% on bonds, whereas in the 1980s, you were making 15% on bonds. But the prices don't move much. You get paid a stream of interest. And you're exactly right, Gregory, in the United States, a common mixture is 60% stocks, 40% bonds. So 60% of someone's portfolio, whether it's in a 401k or Roth IRA, is invested in the stock market and is going to fluctuate a lot, but ultimately should grow over time. And 40% is in the bond market to act as a buffer against those fluctuations to be more conservative and generate a bit of interest for that person that gets deposited and reinvested in their account. Yeah, because what people don't really seem to understand is that buying stocks isn't really gambling or anything because that's, that's the perception people have over here. When you oh. own, when you own a stock, like you're, the people that run the company, their main goal is to make profits for their shareholders so you're in fact hiring the smartest people in the world and all they have to do eight hours a day is to make sure you get a return on your investment like that is one of the greatest ways to build wealth over the long term and and just because we don't have that i will i strongly believe is one of the main reasons why 
countries like Suriname just they just stay poor because our capital markets aren't that sophisticated and we don't even have access to the companies that are that sophisticated that make those great returns on investment. Yeah, and I can tell you from experience in the CFA program that two of the three major factors for a developing nation to later become wealthy is having two of the things you just mentioned, Gregory, developed financial markets and the ability to invest in companies and education on finances and how to use those markets. The third one there being technology, I believe. So Mm. it is certainly not gambling. It can fluctuate in price a bit, but so can, you know, you wouldn't say that buying a house is gambling just because the housing market fluctuates, you know? So the fact that the stock market fluctuates does not make it a gamble. And it's a much different mentality too. It's a responsible investing for the long-term mentality that someone should adopt when investing in stock market. Now, not every single person does, but most people do it, I think. And that's a lot different of an approach than it is when you're gambling, playing cards or at a casino or anything else like that, where you're hoping that you could uh, have a big come up, but you might lose all your money too. It's That's not at all what it is when you're investing in stocks. Yeah. And and might I add to that, the one of the negative side effects we have of that is because the money that we have over here, it needs to go somewhere. And because it can't get abroad, it usually goes into real estate. And that means our real estate market is ridiculously overpriced. Young people that want to uh-huh. buy a house, they have to go to like, um, the, the heavy, heavy suburbs in order to just be able to afford a place to live. And if the capital markets of the foreign countries were integrated, that money would flow from Suriname over to the other countries and it would, the housing prices would be way lower and it would be overall so much better. So it, it has a, some kind, just because we can't integrate into the financial markets, you have this ripple effect all the way down to the bottom of the people and they, people, they just don't realize it. Uh, sorry, uh, I'm going to go off on a tangent if you if you don't stop me, but it's, it, I just wanted to get that down. <laughs> because it's, no, that's it's, interesting it's, to hear about. Yeah, that's, it. again, it's kind of hard to hear. I, I Not that I, I, I totally understand what you're saying. I just, you know, I feel, it makes me feel very fortunate, but I, I also question, I feel fortunate to have been born in the United States where there are developed financial markets. I myself have a financial plan that I know I'll be able to retire on in the future because of these things that we're talking about. And if I had been born in a developing nation, that wouldn't be the case. And so I feel like um, undeserving, I guess, of the scenario that have been been put in when you speak about things like that. But let, let me just add, because our economy isn't that sophisticated, it also isn't that competitive. So you can have a, you don't really have to worry about losing your job. If you have a job, you'll okay. have it until 60. So there are some benefits to get over here. It's pretty laid back. It just, you just very stagnant. Like if that's your goal sure. in life, it's, it's a great place to stay. We have a lot of nature and stuff. Okay. Great. A lot about investing isn't about choosing the companies and, and setting up a portfolio. It's a lot what you said about getting into the psychology and understanding your clients. Could you explain like how important psychology is to from understanding people and making sure that they don't, uh, because markets move in a cycle, of course, they don't enter at the top or they, they panic sell and close out at the bottom of a cycle. Could you please explain how important psychology is to investors? I could talk about this all day long. I love that question. Psychology is extremely important to investors. The level three CFA exam 
goes into a lot of detail on behavioral finance and human psychology and how people manage their emotions while investing. And most people do not manage those emotions well. So there are a lot of wealth managers and financial advisors in the United States who do exactly what I do. And they'll tell you that the most important part of their job is managing clients' emotions. I don't like to think about it that way because I have the CFA and I like building portfolios and doing other things. But in a way, they're right. It is an extremely important part of the job. And I could give you so many examples of March of last year from 13 months ago from today when, at least in the United States, when when, when the pandemic really started to hurt financial markets, the S&P 500 in the U.S., which is the most broad stock market here, was down 33%. A lot of our clients approached it very responsibly and they did not need help managing their emotions and they said hey this is a great time i'm gonna bump up my risk level a little bit buy more stocks put more money into the markets and they weren't too flustered by it even some people who are retired who need that money to live off of but then another large group of clients was extremely were extremely upset by this and we have unfortunately two instances of clients who said, nope, we're not going to listen to you. We want all of our money moved to cash and taken out of the stock market completely. That's when the market was down about 30%. Well, since then, the market is up about 70 or 75%. It's it fully recovered and has grown a lot. We may be approaching the early stages or middle stages of a bubble, some people would argue now, because it's up so much. And for people who got very scared in March of last year and cashed their investments out to either buy 100% bonds or just hold direct cash in their account... They didn't make any of that in their account. You know, it's literally cost some hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. So just having your financial advice, you know, you could pick the best investments of the world and beat the market by 2% every single year. But if your client sells out at the bottom, they will never recover over the course of their life by beating it by 2% every other year. And there's a handful of examples that I know of personally of folks who will never recover for the rest of their lives in terms of growing their net worth to the point that it could have been if they had not cashed out their investments completely. I had one gentleman who came into my office. Typically in our firm, we we always ask that people schedule appointments. This guy would not schedule the appointment. He was like almost pounding on the door. He came in, he sat down with me, he was crying. He's a 65-year-old man, typically a very confident, outgoing individual, was like sobbing in my office saying that he knows we're never going to recover from this. And I just grabbed a chart of the stock market over the past hundred years. And I said, do you see all these dips in here? We're in one of those dips right now, but look at what it does over a long period of time. And it grows. And I said, don't cash out of your investments. He's like, is it done falling? I said, in my opinion, no, I was wrong. I thought it was going to drop 50%. It only ended up dropping 32. I said, no, it's probably not done falling. It's going to continue to fall. Again, I was not right about that. It recovered very quickly afterwards, but now he has, when he sees us, and I've probably talked to him three times since then. There's nothing he can do other than thank us as much as he possibly can. Because again, it, it totally saved his, he, he potentially could have had to go back to work and he couldn't be retired anymore. So every time we see him now, it's just, thank you, thank you, thank you. You saved us. You saved my wife, my family from losing all of our wealth when the market was way down. He's extremely grateful. So that's just one example of how important it can be to help people manage their emotions during very volatile market times. On the opposite side of that, let's say, for example, someone ignored your advice and they cashed out at the bottom of the crash and yeah. y- they stay with you as their financial planner. It, I, I assume trust goes both ways. They still trust you, but you don't trust them anymore because when shit hits the fan, 
they're gonna panic again. Does that hurt your relationship for the long term? In my opinion, no. But in many of the folks that I work with, the answer would be yes. So I think the the yes answer is a more popular one. So I'll give you what they would say, Gregory. They don't. It feels like they don't trust you. They're not going to take your advice anymore. Why are you working with us if you don't want the advice? And not to mention, we don't earn any fees from working with folks when they're 100% in cash. So from a business perspective, the, the two partners of our firm will be like, hey, what are we doing here? Can we have them move their money out to their bank account or something rather than in an investment account with us all in cash, where again, we're not billing any fees off of. So the partners of the firm aren't happy. And from the advisor's perspective, it's a weird relationship moving forward because you know that they might not take your advice on, on almost anything. For me personally, that doesn't really bother me. I would just know that I need to focus on them more and, and maybe push even harder to get them not to make bad decisions in difficult times. I wouldn't feel like that relationship is burdened, but most of the people in the couple examples that I'm thinking of in my own work would tell you, yes, this is a problem. And, and actually, you'll hear of it. It's fairly common where financial advisors will fire clients because the clients aren't responding to the advice that they're giving them. And that can happen too. Speaking of fees, I want quickly want some clarity on that. So you said you guys don't charge for those engagement and in the end, they make the decisions to buy or sell yeah. or hold. You guys are just there to give professional financial advice. So how do like wealth managers, I guess, generate income from those types of clients? Do you guys take a cut from like the investments? And do these, I guess, these percentages stack up in the end in, and it becoming harder to like outpace the, the rate of increase in the total stock market? There are many different ways that wealth managers generate revenues for their, their businesses and for themselves. This, these ways have been shifting recently. Throughout the 1980s and 1990s, it was almost all commission. You'd charge a 3% commission to trade a stock, to tell someone to sell this stock, buy this stock, sell this fund, buy this fund, whatever. We almost do, we do very little commission business and only in instances basically with life insurance where we don't want to have to outsource that to third parties. So in our firm, we are about 90% fee-based. Now there's also a model in the United States called fee-only. And so it's exactly what you mentioned, Diego. Fee-only wealth managers can only charge as a cut. And it's usually like 1% is a common example as a 1% fee of the client's account each year. Now the firm I work, we're not 100% fee-only because we do get commissioned from commissional products, which for us typically is life insurance. And I've done a handful of life insurance cases. Sometimes they pay us like $20. So technically it is a conflict of interest. You disclose it to the client, but we do some commission business because we don't want to have to refer that out to people. So you can earn a little bit of money there, but typically it's as of a percentage fee from client investment dollars that are in our portfolio models, the models that uh, we construct and that we manage for people. So in the example I gave earlier, when someone says, Hey, I'm worried cash it all out. We take all the money out of our managed model that we are billing a fee from and just stick it in a brokerage account as all cash. And in that brokerage account, they're not, our firm is not generating any revenues from that. And that's what, that's what I mentioned the fee point for. But yeah, it's typically as a cut of the portfolio. So if you look at the, the really successful financial planners, like, could you, can you separate them from the good financial planners? Because typically, I, I would assume you, 
a rich financial planner is someone that makes their clients a lot of money. But on the other hand, like if you guys make, you can create incentives to get fees under the table for certain funds and stuff. I imagine that happens a lot in unregulated uh, financial companies, like where the really successful financial planners, they just have their buddies over at, at, at JP Morgan and they set them up with the, the fancy funds and stuff and they, they get a 5% commission instead of the typical 1% commission. Like what do you need to be? a successful financial planner do you have to make your clients wealthy or do you have to focus on your yourself basically and and what benefits you to be an extremely successful financial planner it's not the answer you might think it's not because they make their clients a ton of money and there's almost no financial planners out there that do make their clients much more money than other people. Every extremely f- successful financial planner is investing people's money in a pretty similar way. Now, every firm's going to try to differentiate themselves a little bit. So listen, I've talked to the number one, and there's, there's ratings from like Forbes and Barron's and other, other financial publications in the United States. So that's where these rankings are coming from. The number one the the owner the ceo of the number one ranked financial planning firm in the midwest united states and the so that's an example that is a fee only practice and a owner of an raa the most the number one raa in, in new york city new york state in the united states i've talked with the ceo there and ourselves the firm i work is a pretty competitive firm we're not number one on any rankings but the point is all of us are managing clients' investments in a very similar way, and none of us are really doing all that much different. And that's that's what the clients need. No no retirement advisor, so wealth managers managing people's money throughout retire- their retirements, should be performing that much better than anyone else's. And, and the reason is because if they were performing that much better than anyone else, it would only be because they took some speculative investments in like some really low price stocks or potentially penny stocks as well. And then they could really beat the markets in some years potentially, but they would also lose to the markets extremely poorly in a lot of years too. So all of the extremely successful financial planners are not making any more money for their clients than any other financial planners. And actually they, I think as you walked up the ranks of success, you'd see more similarity between the portfolios. Mm-hmm. They would be following indexed 60-40, 60% stock, 40% bond strategies, and that's similar to what I do in our firm. The way you become an extremely successful financial planner is two things. It is working well with clients, meaning people have to like you, and marketing. And you just have to do your job relatively well you don't have to be making people a ton of money if you're a very likable person in all the work you do for them. Now, there is a very big need, I think, as much robo-advising and online options and almost free investing options there are out there, there's a very big need for a service model. So you really need to be offering valuable service to your clients through financial planning, estate planning, insurance planning, and wealth management. But any good financial planner is doing those things, in my opinion. So they're just really likable people and they do a lot of marketing. They do a lot of online marketing, newspaper marketing, local events, and they have a lot of new investors bringing their money over all the time. That's that's the difference between the good and great financial advisors. So what you just said there kind of gave me a provocative thought. So the, the actual work, the financial planning, you say everything is pretty much similar 
the differentiating factor is the relationships you build so this brings a thought what if everything would be automated and maybe we're heading that direction already like is there a need in the future for there to be even financial planners if everything's so similar already and right. you build a system as you said a surface around that i have a cool video on my youtube channel about this and let me preface my answer by saying diego uh, while conveying as little ego as possible because trust me i'm not an egotistical person but let me say this i am very aware of my own biases so if i gave you an opinion on some video game or some racing team or something i would tell you hey i'm biased but this is what i think in this example the answer i'm going to give you is not based on any personal biases i can tell you this is how the marketplace works there will never be a, an instance where everything becomes automated in the financial planning industry in the investing industry it might now, what I mean by that is it's very easy for someone to open up an investment account in the United States and deposit a thousand bucks or a hundred thousand or a hundred million dollars and buy an index fund and let it ride. And you wouldn't have to really do anything with it. And there are websites that you can do that Vanguard, Schwab, Fidelity, whatever. Some of the bigger personal financial planning websites, though, are like Betterment. What they've found in, in their growth over the past five, 10 years is that they need more and more people to service clients through financial planning relationships. People like to work with people. And if you ask the CEO of Betterment what they're doing right now, it's they're trying to hire as many CFP professionals, CFP is the designation we talked about earlier, as possible because they have all these investors with them and all these investors have questions and they want to talk to someone and get those questions answered. So the reason I tell you I'm extremely confident about the fact that this industry will never become fully automated is in my meetings with clients. And we work with a lot of very start people just starting out in their financial planning careers, young couples, 25, 30 years old, who just got a good full-time paying job for the first time. And we work with many extremely wealthy, multi, multi-million dollar families. We talk about their investment portfolios for anywhere between as few as three minutes to as many as 30 minutes in a client meeting. Okay. The other one one hour and 27 minutes we spend talking about their financial plan so many various topics i mean the goals that they have things that they're working on right now how they feel about certain decisions we're making differences between different options they'll ask us how do i how am i doing relative to this they just they're curious about different things there's things that we want to communicate to them to point out to them that are happening in certain regulations tax laws financial markets the economy so we spend very little time actually talking about their investments. The vast majority of my my job is in talking about financial plans and, and people's lives. And so that type of uh, business model can't really get automated. It requires a person-to-person -person conversation. So it's like a money therapist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't love that aspect of the job, to be honest. Like I mentioned earlier, I'm not one of the financial advisors who says managing people's emotions is the most important part of my job. And there are many financial advisors who will say that, but... In a lot of ways, you're a money therapist, yeah. Cool. Okay, so moving on, you previously said they spent, or, or the financial planners, the wealth managers, spend a lot in marketing and trying to differentiate themselves to build those relationships. So from your view, what do you think is generally the problem in financial media and marketing nowadays? The problem in financial media is the same problem that exists in all media, which is that the people putting out the media are for-profit entities 
who need to drive as much attention to their media vehicles, whether it be a TV channel or a website or a radio show, they need to drive as much attention to their media outlets as possible. And the way to drive attention from human beings, and human nature has never changed for as long as human beings have existed, the way to drive that attention is through shock and awe or big breaking news things. So financial media companies are no different than any other media companies. They have to report on or when they're, they have to report on very shocking things and when the markets are calm and there's not that much going on, they have to make things that are not that shocking seem very shocking. So that's the problem in financial media. Now, I don't want to say it's all a problem. I think in general, the financial media is very good. I like 75%, I guess, uh, or some other majority percentage that exists out there that's put out by financial media companies, but there is some annoying and some unnecessary stuff out there too, to your question, Diego. So the same the same problem exists across all media channels. And and talking about the the media channels, like there's a story about your channel where you got started in finance through day trading, and that is something that people in Suriname have a lot of experience about because there's a lot of scammers that get over here through ah. fo- through forex scams primarily because those are very unregulated markets and it's easy to tap into those. And then they say we can give you a two percent return per day per week whatever, and then a lot of people get burned obviously, and. It's pretty cool, like, how our countries are so separated from each other. Like, there are people from the United States that kind of fall victim to that trap as well. And I'm not saying you yeah. fell victim to it, uh, but, like, that's how you got started. And that's how I got started as well. I, I just didn't give up after I got burned. Like, uh, and apparently you didn't either. Could you explain, like, what your experiences were with the day trading? Yeah, I, I can, and... It's something that I still hope that in the future I can turn into a profitable activity for myself. It's certainly not something I would recommend to other people to do because it's a very low success rate type of thing, kind of like trying to become a movie star in Hollywood, California, or something like that. I wouldn't recommend, even for people who are good at acting, I wouldn't say, yeah, you should move to Hollywood. I just wouldn't tell someone to do that. Same way I wouldn't tell someone, yeah, you should start day trading. But there are many... Non, there are many honest, good people who do day trading for a living. Now, they're not the majority of people. The majority of them are kind of trying to hype people up with their commercials and ads. And I don't want to necessarily say they're scamming people. I don't think they're scamming people. I think they're just lying to people. Maybe you would consider that to be the same thing and trying to paint some rosy picture for them about what's going to happen when, when you start day trading. But I got into it following some of those less honest people. I think I've pretty quickly learned that they weren't that honest of people. And I found other people in the day trading space through Twitter and YouTube that I realized were the people that I wanted to be following. They were the most educated. They were the most honest. They were very humble. They admitted, Hey, I was really stupid for doing that. Or this was something good that I did, you know, and, and they're not trying to scam anyone. So there are people out there that I really respect in the day trading industry who are making a lot of money doing it. They're very profitable traders. I would like to be able to do that for myself in the future, but it's not something that I'm devoting any time or energy or money towards right now because I've probably, I don't know, lost five or $8,000 over my attempts at day trading the prior three times I've tried it. Yeah, could you quickly give us like three, a few red flags uh, to <laughs> identify and a, a few like green flags? Oh, this is someone I, I could follow. Yeah. 
Well, no, I don't know if I can because that's a difficult question, Diego. I would like to be able to provide those because it could be helpful for some people. The first red flag that comes to mind is if they're guaranteeing any performance figures to you. Nothing is ever guaranteed in day trading. You can always lose money on any given day, and it is speculative and risky. So here are some green flags, though. People who are very honest about their losses, because even the best traders out there will lose money some days. So one green flag is when someone actually posts online, you know, shoot, I lost money today. I made some mistakes here. As Here's how I'm going to improve from it. It shows that they're humble and intelligent and honest, and those are all great characteristics of someone to learn from to have another green flag is in my opinion in, in day trading is small consistent wins so a lot of people online twitter youtube maybe instagram too i'm not on instagram or facebook i'm not on that but they post their gains and losses throughout the day day traders will and one one green flag for traders and someone if you see this it might be someone worth trying to follow and learn from is that they'll have Relatively small profit days, like maybe they'll only make $100 or maybe it'll be two or 3000 or $5,000 in a day, but they're very consistent in earning those profits. I think that shows that they utilize a trading strategy that is repeatable and realistic to build wealth with, you know, earn a, earn a realistic income from over time. When you see someone make a hundred grand in a day, but then lose 60 grand and then lose another 60 grand the next day, they're really probably just taking the most leverage that they can and buying some really crazy financial derivative instruments. And it's not a sustainable strategy. So, so the green flags are they're honest about their strategy and their losses and that they're a slow and consistent winner. And speaking of green flags, I think this is a, a, a nice segue to go full circle back to your YouTube channel. And I think we've seen that consistency, you sharing knowledge, you sharing your experiences through the videos you've done. So. I guess, why did you set up the YouTube page in the first place? Because it costs money to produce. It costs time to produce. Why not just use your skills and time into, I guess, the wealth management part? Wouldn't that be more like profitable for fulfilling? I guess, what's your take on that? Yeah, that's a good question. I have, just in listening to you ask that question, Diego, probably five or six different answers came to mind. The reason I started the YouTube channel was because I like making YouTube videos and I like sharing information. And I especially like encouraging people to start saving their money. Young people, like in their twenties in the United States, a lot of people are not saving into retirement plans. I like getting people to start doing that who otherwise are not. Uh, I had YouTube channels when I was a kid making weird little videos playing around outside and uploading them on YouTube. And YouTube was always the number one source of media that I consume. I don't pay for cable TV. I don't watch really much news don't really watch much Netflix. I watched a lot of YouTube though. So I really like the medium. I like sharing information. And then I have many different interests and I, I follow YouTube channels that, that talk about or do all these various different things. So if you look at my YouTube subscription box, it's like all over the place. But I was studying for the CFA exams and that was a, a major focus for me for a couple of years. I didn't post my first YouTube video until I had passed uh, the level two exam. So I'm studying for the CFA exams, and again, every other aspect of my life, all my interests, all the things I do, my job, everything else, there's a big following. There's a big, there are a ton of channels that talk about that and a lot of videos on YouTube that cover that stuff. The CFA program, there's almost nothing. And I'm looking at this going, wait, why can't I find any interesting content on YouTube about the CFA exams? Now there's Mark, at the time when I started, there's Mark Meldrum. He's great. He's extremely educational, but he's not like a lifestyle or personality type channel. He will literally teach you how to answer questions right to pass the exams. 
And from a, on a very rare occasion, he has like a little bit of a comedy type video that he'll upload, which actually is pretty funny. Mark Meldrum's awesome, but I don't get a, all that pleasure out of like sitting down for a half hour and watching a Mark Meldrum video. So I was like, hey, I could really compete here because I've passed two CFA exams and I like YouTube. I've always wanted to, I guess, start a YouTube channel because it's all I watch and I like sharing information and I guess talking, but I had never started one and I just, I remember the day it was like, I was on Twitter and I just, and you know, I like Gary Vaynerchuk a lot. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. He's always like, Hey, just do it. Hustle, grind, do what, you know, start things. And, and I always listen to that advice, but I hadn't actually started a YouTube channel. Well, one day, one of the guys I follow, he's a day trader that I follow on Twitter. He just posted something, a tweet. It was just like, just start. You have to start to get to some point. And I was like, okay. So I was like, I might as well just do it. I don't remember what I was doing that day. I was kind of bored. So it was on my iPhone. It was not expensive to your point, Diego. I didn't spend any money. I did spend a lot of time on it though. I just recorded a video on my iPhone. It's terrible. If you watch the first 10 videos on my YouTube channel, they're so bad, but I just, I, I got started. Then I like didn't, then I uploaded a video after I passed level three. So, you know, a year after that. And I, I don't know if I had 10 or 20 videos on the channel at the time. And I was getting like 20 or 30 views per video. Didn't really do anything with it. I was off YouTube for like six months. I can't remember what happened. I logged in one day randomly and my, and I hadn't been on for six months and my video that said how I passed all three CFA exams had like 50,000 views and I had like a thousand subscribers on my channel and I hadn't done anything in six months. And I was like, Oh, well, this is awesome. I'm going to, I'm going to roll with this. So it's exciting for me. It's, it's a fun to build something in that space, share information. I like talking about the CFA exams. And again, I don't think there's a ton of other channels out there that are doing that really well right now. I think my next closest competition would be Afzal Hussein and he has a much bigger channel than mine, but he's primarily focused on like investment banking. And he makes some CFA related videos, but I don't think he's been through the program. So, and he hasn't done the CFP exams. He doesn't have the exact same insight. My channel is a little bit different. I think I'm going to be able to compete in that space. I know that people are going to be watching and looking for CFA exam videos on YouTube in the future. And I want to be the main personality and lifestyle channel for CFA and CFP content, you know, in, in five years from now. The reason I do it instead of spending more time working towards my career, I think technically you're right, Diego, I could probably have a higher ROI and spending more time like just trying to market or prospect to potential clients to come invest with the firm that I work with or something like that. But another reason that I got into the field that I'm in is because I don't have to work more than 40 hours a week. I, I don't like working 50 or 60 hours a week doing one thing. Like I mentioned to you guys a few times, I have several interests. So I just want to be able to do various things with my time. And I'm glad that I don't have to work more than 40 hours a week I don't want to spend more time. I like the job, but I just, I want to spend time doing other things. So that's the way I think about, you know, earning an income. Cause I don't make much money on YouTube at all right now. That's totally true, but I might in the future. And, and if I ever want to in the future, I have to build it today. That's really, really cool. And I think that goes to show like the finance market is really already a niche. And I think that one video that like hit it off on the CFA yeah. clearly stated there's a, like, if you think of it from a business perspective, product market fit, there's the audience, there's the demand. Yeah. And I, I really like that. It's a few things we've learned during the fellowship as well on, on market building. And I, I think you should keep that up and really awesome what you're doing. Okay. So to, to follow Wait, up, I, I think Greg has an interesting I, Yeah, I, I do want to note on that is that's how I 
followed your channel is because I was looking for CFA content and all the videos mm-hmm. I found, they just, they just weren't what I wanted. I, I could click on them, but I wouldn't subscribe. But your videos and you have a sort of big brother approach, which is like you genuinely want the best for the people who are watching your videos and you, you don't pretend like you're better than them. It's just really super casual and it's very engaging. So I, I think that's why your video is, is set to explode in the next few oh, years. Thanks. Yeah. All right. The last question okay. we have for you. Oh, I appreciate you. that perspective. The last question we got for you. Let's just say there's this, there's someone in Suriname who just finished high school or just finished college. And because we don't really know what the financial markets look like, they, they want to, work in finance they know they like finance and economics the the standard dogma we have over here is you get a master's degree and then you just find a job whatever but there are other programs professional programs like the cfa and the cfp let's just say i know you are an expert in all these topics but let's let's just take the accounting what would you suggest someone do if they're interested in accounting and they don't want to get an academic program? And and what other jobs are there? Because you're in portfolio management and you're in financial planning. And what other subjects are there? And what kind of degrees could people get? So Gregory, uh, give me that the beginning part of that scenario one more time if you could. They're in high school and they like finance and they're considering doing a degree in accounting. But your question uh-huh. is what else should they consider? Yeah, this, let's just say they don't really know what they're interested in. And let's, I want to give them a picture of if they're interested in accounting, they can do this. If they're interested in portfolio yep. management, they can do this. And what other programs are there? Well, in terms of your university studies, I, I actually have long said that accounting is the most valuable thing you can learn. I did a management and finance in university and the accounting classes I had were the most valuable classes still, maybe even to what I do today. I had to do three accounting classes. I didn't enjoy it at the time. I complained about them at the time, but I I think I also recognized some of the advantage to those classes back then too. And especially if you want to be like a stock analyst, an equity research analyst at a Wall Street bank, you need to be really sharp on accounting because like 75 or 80% of that job is looking through companies' financial statements. So To your question, Gregory, if you did accounting, there are a ton of options out there in terms of careers. Every company in every industry needs accountants. So accounting to me, in my opinion, is similar to like being a doctor or a nurse when people talk about geography, because a doctor or a nurse, they can work anywhere in the world because there are always going to be people who need medical care. Accounting is the same way. There will always be companies anywhere uh, in the United States or in countries elsewhere where people will need an accountant to work at their uh, company. Everyone else, all individuals on planet Earth pay taxes. At least I think people in developing nations have regular tax payments to make as well. So accountants can also do that type of work. So I wouldn't say that there's any one area that you should consider getting into with that type of a background. Accounting and economics, I think I might also say, are very good introductions to financial markets and and how finances work that you can leverage into a lot of different careers and university studies or programs you know you ask about academic programs if you're if you did accounting the cpa is a very good way to go i know a lot of accountants who don't have the cpa and to be honest with you i kind of look at them as a little bit inferior to those accounts who do have the cpa so that that would be the next place to go with that background anyway 
Right. And, and what other jobs are there? Cause there's this risk management, there's portfolio management, there's client relations. I don't know. Just what other finance jobs are there? Because we don't really know it. I don't know what I don't know. So could you, could you please sure. help me? <laughs> yeah. Asset management is a really broad category. That's going to include almost anything that is what's considered buy side. If you ever hear this term buy side, it means you are choosing investments. You are buying investments. Uh, so in, in asset management or buy side, you're going to have what I do, like wealth management. You're going to have every type of institutional investor. Institutional just means lots of money. So institutional investors are things like university endowments, pension funds, major corporations. You mentioned JP Morgan earlier. They certainly manage their own balance sheet of investments. Those are institutional investors. Buy, asset management or buy side investing could be an analyst or an associate for any of those places where you're not yourself making the investment decisions because usually in really big firms, only senior people will actually make the final investment decisions, but you're providing information and doing work behind the scenes to gather and build a deck or build a presentation to help the people who do make the decisions inform those investment decisions. So there's a ton of buy side opportunities in asset management. I mentioned what I do, wealth management, investment banking is investment banking and then private equity and hedge funds. Those three, I would say, are ones that people like to talk about a lot. But to be totally honest with you guys, very few people who watch my channel or this podcast or any other financial media will ever end up in investment banking, private equity, or hedge funds. The people who end up working in any of those three fields got there because they went to a number one or number two or number three undergraduate university. They got a number one or number two or number three MBA, and they worked at JP Morgan. Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, or maybe Credit Suisse for two years as an analyst, and then they get into private, you know, so there's a very specific path. It's it's kind of like, well, shoot, now I can't remember the, the Premier League. You know, if you think about soccer or football globally, people who play in the Premier League, you know, they, they were on a very different path when they were 12 years old than other people who play soccer or football competitively. And that's, that's kind of what investment banking. So anyway, we'll, we'll kind of rule those three out, but there's certainly, I, I kind of mentioned corporate finance and doing accounting there. I'm trying to think through a video I posted on my channel about the tier list ranking different finance careers. A lot of opportunities, a lot of opportunities. I think I've probably hit on the big ones right there. I think we can definitely refer to that video in the description once we put sure. up this podcast and some resources for people who are interested but yeah, there's so much more that we can definitely go into, especially on the personal finance side for myself. But we've, we've been at this for over an hour now, and it's been so enjoyable having this conversation with you. So I guess to, to close it off, is there any, like, what can people expect from you aside from, you know, continuing publishing CFA videos, how the channel's going and any last final thoughts you can lay them out now? What and people, yeah, I do have one kind of final comment or question. What people can expect from me is continued CFA, CFP content. And I am going to continue to dabble in personal finance content on YouTube because I'm personally passionate about it. And I want people who are not investing to not like, I'm not saying I, if you're not investing, you need to be investing, but I want them to consider it and be educated on it and decide if it's right for them. The more people that, you know, and the, I'll give you one real quick point here. In the United States, we used to have pension funds all over the place, and there's a Social Security fund, which is like free money that you get when you're 65 years old. 
both of those things, pensions are already gone and social security is going to be changing in the future. So people that are my age now, when they're 65 years old, there's going to be far less pre-built retirement income for them. And so that's why I'm so passionate about getting people to start investing now who maybe are not doing that. And globally as well. I don't know exactly the retirement uh, income plans at a, in every other nation, but it's never a bad thing to put away a little bit of money each month into an investment account that you can use in the future. So I will continue to make some personal finance stuff, but mostly CFA and CFP stuff. The last point I have here is a question for Gregory. You're taking the level one exam in like just a handful of weeks, man, right? So I appreciate your time here sacrificing a Saturday evening to do this podcast rather than studying because I know when I was like 30 days out, I was pretty nervous. So how are you feeling and what is your study plan here uh, going forward? Actually, I requested to get deferred to the next exam because the we, oh, aren't, okay. we aren't allowed to make commercial flights because I have to travel to the closest place is Trinidad. So I need to be able to leave Suriname and enter Trinidad. So there's two regulations I have to comply with and both of them are locked down. Wow. So there, there's no way I can do the exam. Wow. So I, I, I was forced to defer. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. Okay. Great. That makes sense. Well, sorry to hear it. I also really feel for anyone who's had to defer during their CFA studies. So I'm sure that's not an easy thing to have to do, but I understand yeah. it. Okay, great. AJ, we'll link your channel in the description. You also have a Patreon page. Could you please plug that? Yeah, my Patreon page is Straight Talks, and I have a general support page, and then I have a $20 a month option where if you're studying for the CFA exams, you can use my study sheets and ask me for any updates uh, of the formulas that I used and formulas I memorized to pass the exams. I'm very big on formula memorization in the final week before any CFA exam. I think it's the secret to passing. So I have those available on Patreon. And then also an extremely expensive personal coaching course that no one has ever taken advantage of. And I don't know if they ever will, but if anyone ever wants to, I just threw it out there as a, as an idea, as an option. So thanks. Thanks guys. And yeah, my YouTube channel and my Patreon page, I also have a TikTok account, but that's not all that related. That's more like taxes and stimulus ah. in the United States updates, things like okay, that. Okay, great. And you say you also play a lot of video games. What What is your gamer tag? What kind of games do you play? So we'll, we'll plug those as well, of course. <laughs> yeah, sure. Most recently, I've been playing League of Legends, which is a really popular game internationally. And my gamer tag there is Ninja Kimchi Sucks. <laughs> I have a friend whose gamer tag is Ninja Kimchi. And so I made mine in a, a joke towards him. So it's Ninja with a capital N, kimchi like the Korean cabbage with a capital K, and sucks with a capital S. And so if you want to send me an invite there, I'd be happy to play with anyone. All right, great. We'll send it. And then hopefully we can send some people over your way. Great. 